My rock bottom was about five years where all I could do was writhe in pain. I couldn't stand, I couldn't sit, I couldn't lay still, I couldn't watch TV, I couldn't read a book, I couldn't work at a computer. I was like a human rotisserie because I had to keep changing surfaces that had the weight on it. This is What Doesn't Kill You, where we hear the stories of ordinary people who overcome extraordinary difficulty. Today we'll be learning from Jill, whose brutal, decades-long struggle with a mysterious chronic illness has ultimately led to a beautiful life of service. Okay, well, I'm Jill, and um, you're probably going to learn pretty quick that I'm like obsessively organized. So if it's okay, I'm going to give this story in five acts. So act one is just me growing up to probably about age 20, where I had a very lucky, charmed life. I grew up in Wisconsin with a nice family. I was, you know, good academically. I was athletic. I was ambitious. I, pretty much anything I put my mind to, I could accomplish. I, you know, was valedictorian in my high school. I went to a good college. I got high honors. I met my soulmate there and life was pretty good. I got to the point where I was in graduate school at UCLA in Los Angeles. And that's probably where things started to maybe turn down a little. Act two, I'd say, is like a slow descent into hell. <laughs> and so, um, it just started with like little weird symptoms that at first were not a big deal. Like my face would turn really red and my legs would hurt. And I had some GI symptoms that are too embarrassing to talk about. And you know, little things that you live with and it's no big deal because you're busy and you're doing stuff and you just don't pay attention. But you know, it kind of got worse and more things and I'd start having allergic reactions to everything like not just food and smells but things like vibration which makes driving very difficult uh, i have bought cars before accidentally that i later learned i was allergic to the vibration of so anyway it's like kind of a bigger deal than it sounds like <laughs> heat um all kinds of crazy things like that um, I was getting more kinds of pain, stomach pain, head pain, and then nerve pain. At night, I would get this stabbing itch where it just felt like there were little gremlins all over my whole body, and it would like stick an ice pick into me and then itch. By the time I was written up in the British Medical Journal, the doctors acknowledged 43 legit symptoms. But the two that were really getting my goat at one point, one was POTS, so, so an inability to be upright because all my blood would pool. Um, I would pass out faint, but first you feel really nauseous and blah, blah. But the other thing I had with it um, was called pressure urticaria angioedema, which just means that when you have pressure on any part of your body, you then get... Um, swelling and pain and hives. So it meant I couldn't be upright, but I also couldn't sit still and I also couldn't lay down. Sleep, not sleeping is funny for a while, 
But, oh man, after, after a while, it just, you know, gets pretty hard. I would kind of lay there wondering what I had done in a past life to deserve this. Like, I, I literally thought, was I like a Nazi? What did I do? Back then, um, when I was starting to have these issues, we didn't really have a Dr. Google yet, and none of the doctors that I went to knew what it was. And I was such a rule follower, so I thought, okay, you just go to doctors, and doctors know what to do and takes care of it. And I just kept getting, you know, <laughs> the opposite of that result. I'd go to doctors, and they'd either just look at me funny or tell me mm. that there could not possibly mm. be anything wrong with me because the tests came out normal. Um, sometimes they'd, you know, slip me some drug that, you know, felt like the drug du jour and I would try it. Um, but, you know, meanwhile, things were kind of going downhill. I, I, I had to drop out of my PhD program because I would just pass out whenever I'd sit still. And obviously a PhD program has a lot of sitting still. I'd go to the doctor and I'd tell them and they'd be like, uh -huh. well, obviously you're just bored to death. And I'd like think, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. I cannot believe I went to, you know, years of, of a PhD program in something that I'm so bored with that I can't even stay conscious in class. You know, I, I bought it for a long time that I must just be bored and imagining these things. Um, since my PhD program didn't work out, I went and I pursued my other passion, which was nutrition, and I started my own business. And that was, you know, a lot of fun and really fulfilling. But then that started to just get really hard, too. I, I would have so much trouble just sitting upright. And obviously, like, talking to clients, you kind of have to do that. So I'd start having more and more time where I'd like hide behind my office door with my feet up against the wall. And, you know, I'd start asking my assistant to take care of more and more. It got to be where I couldn't drive. Like my, my commute was only 20 minutes, but I'd have to pull over and lay down in the middle of it and put my feet up. Um, my GI symptoms were getting weirder and freakier and it feels like maybe a little bit too much TMI but there's uh there's something called a prolapse that I'm not going to say what it is but if you look it up you'll be like yeah that's freaky um so just like clear evidence that that stuff was going wrong and yet no doctors could find anything I managed to get myself into the Mayo Clinic Rochester you know supposedly the late the greatest place on earth they told me that, you know, if I wore some compression stocks, socks and just was less hypervigilant, that I would, you know, be okay. So I said, okay, that's it. I'm going to just train myself to deal with this. At the time, I was so optimistic. I was so determined. I was so can-do that at the same time, I was like, okay, well, my business is going to make it. I had to make a decision at that point about signing a lease. And fun fact a commercial lease you cannot get out of. If you sign a lease for a very expensive rent and then you become too sick to work, tough tatas, you still have to pay. It doesn't matter that you cannot run your business. Learned that the hard way. My poor husband, you know, was trying to be nice and there were definitely people in my life who thought that I was just 
nuts and that he was an enabler and he was being too nice and that he just needed to set his foot down. But he always was so nice. You know, I became deeply depressed and not that fun to be around. Um, I spent a couple years on the verge of tears. Like, you know, you know that feeling you have where you're like starting to cry, but you're trying not to. I had that feeling straight on for like two years and I was like, okay, I guess I must be depressed because that, that is a weird feeling to have. You know, I, I, I couldn't eat partially because I was allergic to everything and partially because like, honestly, it felt like I was having a heart attack every time I'd poop. So that's probably too much information. However, I got down to 80 pounds. I learned how messed up the world is because the world will tell you you look fantastic when you get insanely emaciated. <laughs> um, but we were just desperate and I was falling apart and I was staying home more. And then that's kind of the kiss of death because once you're not out in the world interacting with people, then you're lonely and you're ashamed and you're um, isolated. Um, so my husband was so wonderful. We tried so hard to make the lifestyle work. We moved six times. I would faint or pass out every time I got warm. So we kept moving to colder and colder places, eventually Alaska. I needed to stay at 55 degrees and I had to stay shivering cold. If I didn't stay shivering cold, I would pass out. And so 24 seven, shivering cold, never a chance to get warm. You know, I was fainting harder and harder. I would, you know, wake up in the morning and there'd be blood in a couple different beds and I'd have no memory of having been up and fainting. Which is weird because I wasn't sleeping. I, like, I'd be awake all night. I don't know, you know, like fainting was the only time I would, I would sleep. And my rock bottom was about five years where all I could do was writhe in pain. I couldn't stand, I couldn't sit, I couldn't lay still, I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't read a book. I couldn't work at a computer. I was like a human rotisserie because I had to keep changing surfaces that had the weight on it. And that was all day and all night with no sleep. And so every day felt like about 100 years. And every night felt like 500 years. And I would use up all of my coping mechanisms by about 3 p.m. And then it would be like despair time, like, oh my God, how am I gonna make it through the rest of this day? I remember trying a lot of things because I knew I was losing it. And the things that weirdly worked for me, like not everything didn't work forever, but I had like a phase where I really liked listening to books of disaster. <laughs> like I would listen to books about shipwrecks or a plane full of, you know, the, what was it, the rugby team that, that crashed in the Andes. And then they had to like resort to cannibalism. <laughs> and I read a book about people trapped in a well or uh, sorry, in a mine. And it kind of, like, I, I had this need for downward social comparison. I needed, to, I needed to feel like, oh, well, at least I'm not X, Y, Z. 
At some point, I discovered that listening to a few authors really helped me. I, I swear to God, there's one author on earth, Terry Pratchett, where I wouldn't be here today if he did not exist because he has like 45 books that are all delightful at the level of the sentence. Like every single sentence has something hilarious or brilliant in it. So you cannot take your mind off of it. What I learned for myself, especially all night long with all those nights awake, was that thinking is the enemy. Do not let yourself think. Do not ruminate. Do not think. And so I had a really hard time finding things that would hold my attention to that level. But with a little trial and error, I, um, I found him and then eventually a couple other authors where um, I, I just was so blown away by how good their writing was that it made me pay attention and not let my mind wander. I did a lot of meditating. I did a lot of, um, I did a lot of time where I would imagine I was getting a massage because I used to love massages and I couldn't get massages anymore. I felt like I didn't have a lot to look forward to. I mean, actually, I'm not saying that right. I felt like I had nothing to look forward to. I felt like it was so hard to make it through a day and it used up everything I had. And there, there was no food to look forward to, no going out, no restaurant, no friends, no watching a movie, no nothing. And I, I tried, you know, I'm a list maker, I'm, I'm organized. I really tried hard to have things to look forward to. And, but yeah, and I, I think what was tough about it was it just went on for so long. So I had a 17 year diagnostic delay. After 17 years, I finally figured out what I had. I referred myself to the Mayo Clinic that confirmed it. I got access to some drugs, but for three years, none of them worked. But then we come to Act Three, <laughs> um, <laughs> where I guess I'd say um, we found some stuff that worked. And, you know, no drug is perfect. And, um, you know, obviously, once you've been through the ringer, you start to be happy if a drug just doesn't like hurt you. <laughs> and if it makes you 10% better, that's a big deal because now you can work toward, you know, putting that energy to finding something else that helps 10%. But, you know, there were these little signs of hope. And I should say, part of what made me better is getting worse. And that, you know, I actually had to get worse and, you know, start fainting more often, hitting my head, a lot of blood everywhere. That actually got people's attention and um, got me a little bit of, I think, credibility and compassion. And that's um, when things started getting better again. I'm far from normal now. I'm not like, I'm not by any means like able to do terribly normal things, um, but I can do plenty to have a great life. And it was crawling out of that hole 10% improvements at a time that got me where I am now, where my husband would joke that I was like a person drowning and now I'm like a person who has one nostril above the water. And I, I think I'm better than that. <laughs> but, but to a person who's drowning, one nostril above the water is a lot. You can work with that. That is stable. That is, you know, that is fine. I, I, I think I'm actually a person who's like 
floating in a pink unicorn floaty. You know, I'm still in a pond. I'm still soaking wet, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. And, you know, there's not really much more to that than just, I think, pursuing every possible lead, getting lucky where you can. My luck came, you know, not from the traditional routes. What I figured out was that there was a couple people who had incredible expertise in my particular problem. And the only way I was ever going to get to talk to them was through a nonprofit that would once a year have a, um, an online auction. And if I bid the highest, then I could talk to one of these people for half an hour. And so I did that with a couple people. And it, you know, it, sometimes you just need that one little nugget of information. Um, I took that nugget of information to my Alaska doctor who, you know, ironically was the best doctor of them all because she actually took time and she actually listened Mm -hmm. and she allowed me to, to try some things. And so I guess that takes me to the next act, which is, um, kind of what my life is like today. And I have really built it around trying to give back and help other people have an easier time of it because 17 years is longer than average for a diagnostic delay, but the diagnostic delay is still pretty long. It's still something like four or five years. And that's way too long when everybody is telling you it's all in your head and you can't get any help and you're getting worse and your career is going to hell. You know, five years is just way too long. You know, I'm so old that when I started this whole thing, there was not much of an internet and not much of a Dr. Google. But, you know, as as that 20 years went on, all that stuff was coming along. And so I was like in high heaven by the time there was like actually Facebook groups about my problem. And you could ask questions and exchange information. So I was pretty heavily on all of those um, all of those groups and things. And, um, at one point there was one of the leading POTS physicians online just put out a a Facebook post saying, Hey, I have some statistics that I need to have run. Can anybody help me? And I was like, yeah, I can help you. And, you know, that was many, many studies ago. And so now I have, um, I think, 14 publications in the medical peer review literature and a bunch more that didn't get published. But that was just kind of chipping in when somebody needed it. Um, And then at another point, somebody in one of these groups said, hey, I'm thinking of founding a nonprofit. I want to make a website that has all kinds of good information. Could anybody just help proofread and make sure that all this stuff is is right? And again, I said, yeah, I will help. And that went great. And that eventually turned into um, the standinguptopots.org website, which has now um, donated over half a million dollars to POTS research. Um, and then that was an avenue for starting the Potscast. I have a podcast that tries to get that information out, the information that I wish I had had sooner. I'm helping to make a documentary about this to hopefully raise awareness. And my husband and I make cartoons to try to bring out the absurdities of all this crap. I try to make it better for other people who are coming after me, but the selfish truth is that 
I love doing this work because nothing is ever going to be as meaningful to you as the thing that you, you know, suffered for and the injustices you felt. And you feel every little problem in the system so excruciatingly strongly that you, you really find your, um, I think, your mission. And you have so much meaning in life. And, you know, one thing I learned along the way is that if your body's not in a place to give you very much pleasure or very much joy, meaning can really make up for that a lot. I don't know if it gives like the same dopamine hit or what, but at least for me, um, I can get pretty far on doing really meaningful things. My fifth act was just be that be that I think I'm so much more grateful for every little thing now that my life is probably happier with all this having had happened and was still kind of having a lot of imperfections than if none of it had happened. I'm pretty well above water. Like I still, it's not comfortable for me to sit. I still don't go out to eat because I will have allergic reactions to plenty of things. But at home, if I make it, I can eat anything I want. I, um, you know, have my nice puppy here with me, my husband, um, who proved that he is a knight in shining armor, is still my soulmate, and we do so many fun things together. I can um, hike, I can cross-country ski, I gotta kind of do some things to make it work, but it, it's totally, it's fine, right? As long as you don't care that you look weird and you have to do things a little differently. Um, I remember, you know, back when I was a nutritionist in Los Angeles, before all this stuff happened or before it got very bad, there was just so much like one-upping one another and trying to, you know, compete and, you know, oh, is she more successful than I am? And, oh, and like, oh, it's so nice to have that garbage out of your life and spend time with people who just instantly get it and know what's important and that we're all trying to help one another. And, um, and that is so, so beautiful, nice. And maybe there's easier ways to get that if there is. <laughs> I'd love to get it an easier way, but if you have to go through the hard stuff to get that, that also is a pretty huge silver lining. I, I think everybody has big things go wrong in their life sooner or later. Once you've had something really big go wrong, I think you don't fear all the other stuff anymore. I feel like it's on me to figure out how to make meaning and how to make it pay off somehow. And I don't assume that it would be like an enriching experience in the absence of me working really hard to try to make it so. Uh, maybe it would be. Um, yeah, my, they always say that what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And so I don't know if that is something that just happens or if that is a decision people make at some point. At least for myself, it's up to me to make these experiences mean something. And whether that's through developing character or strength or knowing who my friends are and who they really you know who they aren't or having confidence that I can rebuild a life several times, um, you know, knowing that you don't have to get your life back, it's enough to get a life back. And by the time you've done that a few times, you start noticing the things that 
you're good at, the things that always end up in your life, the things that, um, you know, that you can count on. So these are just examples, I think, of things that if you decide to make meaning out of all of it, you can. And I think that maybe sometimes it takes a while though. <laughs> I mean, actually another thing that's come with this is me appreciating age, right? Like for example, when something goes on for 20 years, you start to really learn the value of tiny habits that add up day in, day out. Um, you realize it's a long life and you realize that, um, you know, even if you can't do something very good today, if you can just do one teensy tiny little thing and keep doing that, well, pretty soon 10 years is gonna have gone by and it's gonna have made a big difference. Thanks for sharing your life with us, Jill. To hear more about Jill's journey, including extra insights and stories we weren't able to include here, be sure to subscribe to our publication on Substack. Our theme song is Fish Beach by Michael Nyman. And this episode also features excerpts from Winter by Antonio Vivaldi. <laughs>